Hello, my name's Floss and I'm so happy that you can join me here today on Exactly. My podcast is an invitation to ask all of the hard questions. I've wanted to create a place and hold space for these conversations off social media for so long to give them the depth and the nuance that they deserve. As with everything I do, it's always been about connecting women, connecting queer people, just bringing anyone that gives a shit together. Every month on the podcast, I'm hosting a listener call-in where myself and an expert will be answering your questions, queries, and your dilemmas. So far, we've covered body image, queerness will be the next one, and after that, we're talking all about sex. So please send your questions and your voice notes in for that episode. You can send them to plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So my guest today, Sonia Renee Taylor, the author of The Body Is Not An Apology, one of the most striking titles of a book I've ever fucking heard in my life. It's so incredible. I'd seen it all over social media when it came out and I actually first heard her speak in Brené Brown's episode on Unlocking Us and I was going on a bike ride when I first heard it and I had to pull over and break my bike on the side of the pavement just to pause the podcast and absorb what I'd heard. She's such an incredible speaker. She has so many rich teachings. She's dedicated her life to the work of investigating where systems of oppression live inside of us and outside of us. She wants us to experience what she calls radical self-love. That's not self-acceptance. That's not just self-love. That's not tolerance. That's radical self-love, a concept which she believes is the solution to bring about personal transformation and with it, societal transformation in social justice spaces. Thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how excited I am to speak to her today. So before I get into all of the questions I want to ask you, I'm going to go through my quick five questions I ask all of my guests. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you, don't think too much about it. Okay. Okay. Question number one, what's one thing that sets your soul on fire? Transformation. What kind of transformation? All kinds of transformation. I love watching anything transform. I love watching people transform trauma into healing. I love the seasons transforming leaves into bare trees. I love yes. <laughs> all transformation. Yes. Beautiful love. answer. Okay, the next question. What's the last photo you took? Oh, um, <laughs> a self? No. <laughs> uh, maybe Halloween. Okay. I took a picture of my Halloween costume. Okay. what I did think. you go as? I have to ask. Um, and originally it was supposed to be like the angel of death and then it sort of looked morphed into like a vampire Cruella. Sexy. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Next question. What's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you? So people who don't know you. Uh, they think that like my life is super glamorous. Yeah. And they think that the things that they see me doing are super glamorous. And I don't think they realize how hard they actually Mm -hmm. are. Would you say that is um, some kind of online perspective? I think 
it's just that it sounds different than what it is when you live okay. it. You know, like, so for example, I've been traveling for the last nine months mm-hmm. uh, since April and I've been all over the world and it, and it sounds really glamorous until you're like, no, like I gave away all my things and I live out of a suitcase and I haven't had a home in nine months okay. <laughs> and I don't have an address. Okay. Right. And then people are like, oh. Yeah, that's different, I think, than what I thought. It was. Okay, got you. Okay, so it's like a completely different yeah. perspective of your life. Yeah. Uh, finish this sentence. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to. Oh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything in particular? Anything at all? Um, surrender, I think, is the one. You know, like yeah, every day I'm like, all right, I trust that life is happening exactly as it's supposed to. And then. I have a moment where I'm like, nope, give me back the steering wheel. I'll drive myself. Okay, yes. I to- <laughs> and then I have to... Yeah. I totally get you with that one. It's something I'm working on is my perfectionism. And I feel like that's mm. similar in the way that it's, you can't let go of the yes. steering wheel. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so those are the quick fire questions over. I'm so awesome. <laughs> excited to interview you today. And something that I think you do really well is truth telling with your work. And your book, The Body Is Not An Apology, the title is so incredible. It's it's so potent and it's so powerful. Can you please tell us a bit about the amazing story behind where you came to the title, The Body Is Not An Apology? I was having a conversation with a friend and my friend was disclosing um, that they were afraid that they might have an unintended pregnancy. And so um, I began asking my friend about some of the sexual health choices that she was making. Part of that is because I used to be a sexual health educator as well. I asked her why she wasn't having protected sex. And she shared, my friend um, had a disability, she has cerebral palsy. And she shared that because of her disability, it, you know, it already made being sexual difficult and challenging. And so she just didn't feel entitled to add another request inside of the scenario. And so she said, I just didn't really feel like entitled to ask about condoms. And I said to her very instinctually, your body is not an apology. It's not something you give to someone to say, like, sorry for my disability. And when I said it, it just it resonated so clearly in me yeah. as a truth. Um, as a truth I needed to understand for myself. And so I was like, oh, that's really poetic. And at the <laughs> so time, beautiful. I was a poet. So beautiful, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to write that. That feels like a poem. And so I started writing the poem, The Body is Not an Apology. And I think the words were so potent that they continued to make things for the next decade and a half. <laughs> yeah, you you said that any time you would go to uh, examine yourself or, or look at yourself in the mirror or you felt some kind of insecurity, you had that almost at your hand. It would show up in my brain. Yeah, my body is not yeah. an apology. I think it's so amazing. Instantly. And also the thing is, what, what I find interesting is we tell other people the words that we need to hear. Also, sometimes when I need to think yes. about what I need to listen to, sometimes I listen to the advice that I give to my friends. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah, I think most of the work that comes through me has been, it comes to other people, but it's always for mm. me. It's always for me. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's so amazing. And the concepts that you talk about in the book as well, radical self-love. Again, it's, it's something I feel like I've heard on social media and didn't really understand until your book and your work. Can you talk about radical self-love and what that means to you and why not just self-acceptance or self-love, these times that we also see around social media? Why are they not enough for us? Yeah, so I sort of conceptualize radical self-love as the experience of our inherent enoughness. It is that we know that we are enough, that we are worthy, that we are 
inherently divine and that there's not anything we have to do to earn that. There's not anything we have to do to achieve it. We don't have to figure out how to be good enough, how to be worthy. And that we arrived here enough, that we we were embodied with enoughness when we showed up on the planet as babies. And what has happened is not that we've become less enough, but that we started to believe all of these messages that have told us that we are not enough in all of these different ways and categories. Mm-hmm. And so the work is not to figure out how do I become enough, which is how do I return to radical self-love, but more so, how do I remove everything that is in between me and my enoughness? Mm-hmm. What everything that's in between me and my radical self-love. And, you know, I talk about radical self-love very specifically because I think the word radical really operationalizes what it is that I'm talking about, which is something that is foundational, that is at the very root of who we are. Yes. Something that is that promotes transformation and radical change, something that impacts our political, economic, and social realities, um, and something that speaks to the the origin of our being. And all of those are the definitions of radical. So that's the kind of love that I'm talking about when I'm talking about radical self-love. And I think that self-acceptance and self-esteem and self-confidence and these sort of other terms that people use, I'm never proposing that they're not useful. Mm. I am proposing that they're not transformational, that they don't inherently change the systems and structures that have influenced how it is that we experience ourselves and our bodies and our identities and in our lives. That I could feel good about myself today, my self-esteem is good, And not one social inequity will fall because I felt good about myself Mm, today. Yes. But radical self-love, which says, wait a minute, everything that has told me that I am not enough, that I am not worthy, is a lie? Then that has me interrogate an entire world of messages. Then all of a sudden, I am now activated toward dismantling those things Mm. in the world that are in between me and my radical self-love. Self-acceptance and self-esteem as very individualized notions don't do that work. Mm. And that's the work I'm interested in. Yeah, I love your explanation of it. Where does not enoughness come from? We've built systems over time. Somewhere in history, we did get disconnected Right. And I think that some of those things happened over time. We got disconnected because we got disconnected from the natural world. Right. We got disconnected from, oh, I have a direct relationship to what grows out of the ground. I have a direct relationship to the person in the tribe beside me because we exchange and that's how we all stay alive. Right. There were there is an ancient wisdom to our relationships that we've gotten further and further away from. And instead, what we have put in that place is. If I can dominate, Mm. then I have what I need. If I can control, then I have what I need. So if I can dominate the natural world and extract what I need from it, then I have enough, Mm. right? So we began to see scarcity. Mm. If I have more than them, that must mean I'm better than Mm -hmm. them, right? And so we started taking that idea and then we started applying it to bodies, right? Well, if if I have more than them, 
then I'm better than mm. them. But I have to justify why I should have more than them. Yeah. So now I have to tell myself a story about why I'm inherently better. <laughs> and, and when you're and when you're saying have more than them, you're talking about the hierarchy of bodies exactly. in terms of the scale in scale of being man, being woman, being white, being thin, all being of it, disabled. right? And yeah. more than is more because all of all of those categories, right? The categories of our identities, we have attached to resource, right? The yes. reality is, if you are a man, you make more money than a woman, mm. almost across the board globally, right? If mm. you are a white person, you have more resource than most people of color around the world, right? Mm-hmm. There. So what we've done is we've said, here are bodies that deserve more resource. Here are bodies that deserve more access. Here are the bodies that deserve more connection, whether that's conscious or not conscious, right? And we do that about race. We do it about gender. We do it about size. We do it about ability. We do it across all kinds of sectors of human identity. And so that's that ladder of bodily hierarchy. There's Mm -hmm. a good body, a, a better body, and then there are worse bodies. And the better your body, the more resource and opportunity and access you have, the more likely you are to feel closer to enough. The less Mm. your body, the less good your body, the further away from resource you are, the more likely you are to feel less connected to enoughness. While also, at the same time, making sure that nobody ever feels like enough. Because if anybody actually ever felt like enough then the system couldn't keep replicating itself. Yes. And you talk you talk about the system as the ladder and anyone who participates in it, which is most people until we have some kind of awakening um, about the existence of the ladder. We're always trying to climb it, always trying to get higher up the ladder. And essentially yeah. any kind of worth that is achieved through climbing the ladder or getting up another peg is always going to be... And I think this is what you're saying in the book and everything you've done is that it's always going to be at the expense of someone because there will always be someone below you. Absolutely. It's always going to be at the expense of someone and it's always going to be at the expense of yourself because, again, you can climb the ladder, but the ladder is endless. The ladder cannot act. There's no top to it. And you know there's no top to it. This is my favorite example, right? Like Elon Musk keeps amassing money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Jeff Bezos keeps amassing money. Trying to fill the void. They have right. Yeah. They have beat capitalism, right? Yeah. Like whatever prize you would get for winning in capitalism, they certainly could have won that prize. But there is no such thing as enough to them mm. because there is no enough on that external ladder. Yes. Enoughness is can only be felt as an internal experience. Yeah. And so when you're trying to get it from the outside, you'll never actually feel no. it. So what are some ways that we can, as you describe, divest from the ladder altogether? Because it keeps reinforcing its existence the more we try to climb it. Yeah. So I think the first, you know, I talk about in the book, this framework of thinking, doing, being. And what I propose is that first we have to recognize we're on the ladder. We have to notice that that's what's happening. You know, and I think there are a multitude of tools that help us do that mindfulness and meditation are an excellent tool because they bring you to the moment. And and so part of this is about learning to notice your thinking rather than having it be default. Mm. And noticing your thinking um, happens by starting to separate out 
the other noise. And so in my workbook, I talk about 10 tools to radical self-love. And what mm-hmm. I'm talking about are the tools that help us actu- actually begin to de-indoctrinate ourselves from the latter. And so the first tool is dump the junk. And one of it is starting to notice the messages that you receive externally about your worthiness. Where am I listening to music that tells me I'm not good enough or I don't mm. have a right body yeah. or a right way of being? Where am I listening to television shows or media that says that? What am I scrolling past on my social media feed every day that reinforces the idea that I'm not enough, mm-hmm. right? So once you start noticing, oh, those messages, right? And then take a break from them. Like intentionally don't listen to that stuff for a little bit. And then you're left with your thoughts, <laughs> you know? And I tell people to do small things like give yourself a jar. And every time you say something disparaging, put a dollar in the jar, right? And it's your little, yeah. it becomes your little self-love savings account. But it also <laughs> makes you aware, like you have a physical action that you have to do every time you notice one of those things. What you're doing is you're breaking up the default energy of it. Like it just runs on automatic. You're yes. interrupting that. So once you've... Okay, like autopilot. Autopilot, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so once you've raised it to consciousness, once you're like, oh, that's the thoughts that I'm having all the time. Great. Then the next part is to say, all right, what does that thought have me do? When I think that, I restrict my eating. When I think that, I go shopping. When I think that, I start judging someone else. When, you know, like we start to see Mm. what's the connection between those thoughts and my actual behaviors, right? And then your work is to interrupt that. Okay, I see what I do. Now, today's practice is in this area to do something different. What's the new okay. action to do today? So you're, you're changing the action that follows the thought. Absolutely. And you're changing the action that follows the thought because by interrupting the thought, you are now replacing that thought with a different thought. Well, what's the opposite? Mm. What's the opposite thought? What would be the opposite action? And so the practice of new thought, new action, new thought, new action over time mm. is what creates new, a new way of being. Yes. Okay. No, that's amazing. And that's such a practical tip because I think so much of the time, particularly on social media, there's all this, like you said, the talk about self-acceptance and self-love. And what I love that you've said before is that you don't want to just be accepted by yourself, by anyone else. You want to be loved in a way that is radical, that goes to the root of everything because we can't talk about the fact that we don't like ourselves or the fact that we're unhappy or that we're even on this treadmill of servitude to grind culture, diet culture, whatever kind of culture Mm -hmm. that it is, we can't address that without addressing that there is this ladder that we're all climbing that we don't even relate to. Like, it's just there. It's just there. We've all fallen into it somehow. And what I love that you spoke about, you said about um, how we, once upon a time, we weren't so self-critical of our bodies and um, we were kind of existing in communities with each other. Do you think that has any link to how it's become worse with how we've all become a little bit more independent and we're relying on each other less because of technology or anything and we're like less dependent on each other in our communities do you think there's any link with that absolutely i mean i think individualism is a a yes. dangerous and That's harmful way that we have learned to be and all, you know all of these systems are interconnected all of this is related right individualism which is the idea that like i can do it by myself i only need me all of my success is a function of my own greatness <laughs> all mm. of that is directly tied to capitalism Right. 
how much money I can amass, how much resource I can amass. It's all about this individual I, 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 I conversation. And as long as we are in a relationship where where we only see ourselves as the um, arbiters of our success or our failure, right? Then we are inside of a a non-relational way of being inside an inherently relational world. Like there's no way, the mythology that you did anything by yourself is exactly that. It's a total fiction. It's not possible. There are other human beings here that have to contribute, that have to play a part. But because we see ourselves as separate, and part of the reason that we have to see ourselves as separate is because if we're in relationship with one another and we need one another, then how do I know I'm enough? Again, you know, then it goes back to like, if I need you, then how will I know if I'm enough, right? And this is the reason why this idea of radical self-love felt so important to me is because if we can understand that we are inherently enough, if I understand that I was born enough, then I don't have to play inside of this system. I don't have to play inside of individualism. I don't have to play inside of capitalism. I don't have to play inside of racism to Mm. figure out how to be enough. Mm-hmm. I love the link that you've made between. Um, well, I don't love it. It's awful, but it's it's. Right, <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's it, it, it's uh, clever. Uh, the link you've made between how systems of oppression created from uh, low self esteem in terms of the um, accruing all of this wealth and external stuff to to put people below you, and you've linked mm-hmm. it to right back to land owning white men. Um, it's kind of similar to what Tony Morrison says about if you can only be tall because someone's on their knees, you have a serious problem. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit more about the link between social justice and the ladder and how loving your bodies and social justice are tied to one another? Because you talk about how the journey to even escaping any kind of systemic oppression and to dismantling them starts with yourself. I just I think yeah. the link between them is so important and I'd love to hear you talk about it. Totally. So... You know, again, it's all connected. It is all connected. We have built systems out of our not enoughness. Mm. We have built entire worlds that figure out how to externally validate whether or not we are enough. We call those worlds uh, white supremacy. We call them fat phobia. We call them homophobia and ageism and ableism. All of the things that say that body failing body, not good body, this body, better body, this white, male, cisgendered, able, uh, you know, young, fit Mm. body, the best body, (laughs) the best body. And so we give it everything, right? Like we give it everything. (laughs) That's how great that body is. Right. And then every other body, figure out where you belong on that ladder. Right. Those systems are what we're talking about when we're talking about social justice. But part of what we've done is we've decided those systems are outside of us. That system is over there, Mm. right? Like that bad thing is over there, as opposed to the idea that we were born into those systems, Mm. right? We came here full of radical self-love, little infants who loved ourselves, just gurgling and happy. (laughs) And then somebody said, you're a boy, you're a girl. You're a boy, that's better. If you're not a boy, not as great. But if you're pretty, that's better. Mm. But if you're thin, that's better. But if you're white, that's better. 
if you're disabled, not as good, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we started being categorized Mm -hmm. into these various locations on that ladder. Yeah. And all of those locations on that ladder correspond to a system of privileges and resources that exist in the world. Mm -hmm. When I divest individually from that system, when I divest, when, when I stop believing that my fat, queer, neurodivergent, black body is inherently less than some other body. I take a rung off of that ladder. Mm. Every time I personally divest from the own the messages that I've received about my own body, I start destabilizing the ladder. Then I and if I divest from it for me, then I have to start realizing, well the thing that they told me wasn't true for me, but it must not be true for that body either for the yes. body, that other body outside of me that I was told was wrong or bad, mm-hmm. right? It's every time we personally de-indoctrinate ourselves from the story of wrong, bad, not good bodies, lesser bodies, we destabilize the systems of injustice and oppression that rely on us believing those things. And would you say that you destabilize the system? Because I think a lot of people often, when I do Q&As and stuff, people feel disempowered by the fact that they don't have a platform or that they don't have a following or whatever. And I always say to them, like, you're, you're the knock-on effect of something that's internal is just immeasurable because you carry it with you in every single thing you do. It changes where you spend your money. It exactly. changes who you interact with. It changes who you support. You could be in a room with someone who overhears you say something. It's the knock-on effect is immense. And so when you say that it takes a rung off the ladder, I mean, you wrote a book about it, which has liberated thousands of people. So I think that the the impact of divesting just as one person the, the impact is immeasurable. And I think Absolutely. that it's, um you don't need to make some, because I think sometimes people can look at big systems and feel so helpless. Absolutely. And you don't and need think, that platform to do it. No, you don't. Like, here's what I, I say in the book very explicitly is like, it's all contagious. Yes. Shame is yeah. contagious, right? Self-loathing is contagious. Our belief in the system, totally contagious. Radical self-love, absolutely contagious. We have all interacted with someone at some point and been like, wow, when they walk in the room, they radiate something and I want that. Yes. We have yes. all had that experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so every time we choose to embody our own radical self-love and divest from that system, we are creating a ripple effect beyond what we could ever imagine. And the story that you need hundreds of thousands of people following you on social media or you need a platform is just another way to keep you tied into (laughs) the story of your enoughness is external. Your enoughness is outside of you. It's in how many people see you. That, even that story is part of the ladder. How do you feel that body positive or self-love spaces online have hindered getting to that real radical self-love? Because Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the time it can be performative, not just from the people who were talking about it, but from anyone who kind of engages with it. I feel like on on a personal level, I've always felt this tension between how I actually feel in my body and then how I think I should feel for my Mm -hmm. audience as someone that they look up to Mm -hmm. for my body. A lot of young women listen to me 
I would never trash talk my body. I would never blah, 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 blah. I, I, I know all the things. I know the theory, mm-hmm. right? But then it's like <laughs> in real life, I don't I don't always feel fucking incredible in my body. Um, and there's there's so there's so much stuff they wouldn't even discuss online. Exactly. But there's this tension for me between those two spaces. So I was wondering if you've ever experienced that and how body positive spaces online have contributed towards this. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I mean, I've I've always had a critique since the word body positive arrived in in the scene. Okay. <laughs> I've always had a critique of it. One because it it encourages us to feel positively about our bodies, right? Like, oh, you have to feel positive about your body. And I'm like, that's a it is very difficult to feel positive about one's body when an entire tsunami of systems and ideas and individuals are telling you, no, your body is awful, right? And so it's asking mm. the individual again to take ownership over the impact of the collective, yes. right? And, yeah. and, and part of the reason it does that is because it's an inherently apolitical concept, right? It like it doesn't deal with systems. It doesn't deal with structures. It's again this idea of the individual. If I ju- I will just feel good about my size 14 jeans. And I'm like that doesn't change the fact that manufacturers exploit folks that in bigger bodies. It doesn't change medical malpractice of bigger bodies. It doesn't change that individual notion doesn't change anything that is created the circumstances of the reasons why we don't feel good in our bodies to begin with. And so I'm interested in what we move and shift that does actually change the circumstances such that it is easier to feel better about our bodies. But the other point is, and it's the reason I talk about radical self-love rather than body positivity is because there are things that I love that get on my nerves sometimes. There are yes. things, you know, I was like, I'm thinking about parents. They love their kids and boy, they be tired of them children. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? And it doesn't mean they love yeah, them yeah. any less. It doesn't yes. mean they intend to care for them any less. And, and it doesn't, it, yeah. And it doesn't demand a constant positive attitude about the thing. That would, and it would ex- implode the entire circuitry of a parent to have to pretend. <laughs> like, actually, it's a great way to create trauma inside of a child is to pretend all the time, like everything's just fine, right? Okay. Like that's not healthy at all. Yeah. What is healthy is an authentic and honest relationship, an authentic and honest relationship with my body. I tell people all the time, I've spent the last 13 years running an organization focused entirely on radical self-love. And there are days that I do not feel loving toward my body. Right. Yes. And on those days, the job isn't to be like, oh, I'm failing at radical self-love. The job is to be like, can I love the Sonia that doesn't love her body? Can I I love you, Sonia, who feels like you're not enough? I love you, Mm. Sonia, who feels like you're failing, who feels like you never fit in. I love that version of you. That version of you is as lovable as every other aspect of you. And the more love I pour into the parts of me that feel the most unlovable, the more I become reconciled toward it a whole experience of love again. Yeah, because then I guess to not love that version is just to abandon yourself all over again exactly. in the name of whatever kind of idea you you, you have in your head that you're supposed the to feel you about think your you're body. you're supposed to do, supposed to feel. I'm supposed to feel good. No, that's not true. It's not real. It's not realistic. I tell people all the time, like when I wake up 
and I have to take a really early flight. Those are the days when I'm the le- the least decent version of myself. I'm, I just, <laughs> I have horrible thoughts about every human on the train. I can't yes. stand anybody. And I'm like, oh, you're really, really awful. <laughs> like, Sonia, you're really yes. awful right now. And then I say, I love you awful, Sonia. <laughs> oh, like, that's so I, good. I've never even thought to do I that. I love you awful, Sonia. And the no, more that I, I love awful guilt. Sonia, the less awful she becomes. Wow. Well, again, like you said, a bit, a bit like a child. Like a child. Just loving, loving the stupid thing. Loving. Loving like, I love you. Oh. I really, you are on my damn nerves. And I love yeah, you, child, yeah. that is on my damn nerves today. How, how much does um, joy play a part in your work? And how important is joy to radical self-love? They are inescapable comrades, right? Like they're just <laughs> bound together. Besties. In this, <laughs> people talk about joy as resistance and particularly inside of social justice and anti-oppression spaces, liberation spaces. Um, and I think about joy as inevitable if we allow it to be. Like it can't not be accessed, right? Yes. Like it literally is how one makes it to the next day is the ability to cultivate and find joy. And so I find joy, the experience of joy is like the sun, right? Like mm. it's available, it's there, it's shining. Some yeah. clouds may roll back past one day. That don't mean the sun stops shining. <laughs> it just yeah. means there's some clouds there, but the sun is still doing what it does. Yes. Joy is still there, still available, still present, still waiting for us to choose to access it, mm. to choose to lean into it. That's, yeah. it's there though. And the more that we can access it, the more the, the clouds of self-doubt, of not worthiness, the clouds of um, deep investment in these oppressive systems, the more those clouds dissipate and the mm. more we're in relationship between our radical love and the inherent joy that it that is created from being connected. It's the reason why kids are so joyful. Yes. Right? Because they've it's not been told that they don't deserve it yet. They are they've so not- connected to their radical love that joy is an essential overflow of it. It's like the yes. runoff. Yes. Um, thank you so much. We're going to move into the listener questions now. Can you give me a hand answering them? Sure. Happily. Okay. Um, okay. Question number one. How can radical how can radical self-love not be seen as selfish by the people around me in my life? Oh, I love people people often ask that question and I think it's so interesting. Um okay. and I think we have to talk about like the root of the question, which is the idea that loving oneself, again, we're inside of a comparison. If I love me, it must mean that I love you less. It must mean I'm gonna mm. care for you less, right? So selfish is I care about me at the expense of you. Oh, we're back, yes, because that's what we're used to. We're back inside the hierarchy. We're back on the ladder. Yes. <laughs> and yes. love is infinite. Guess what, y'all? Love is infinite. It is uncontainable. <laughs> you can't run out of it, which does yes. not mean that if I love me, it has to be at the expense of you, right? Oh, it's that scarcity mindset again that scarcity, we're just so encouraged right. to have. Th- there's only this much love. And so if I'm loving me, then that means Scrap I have to give it. you less love, <laughs> right? Yes. Th- that That is yeah. inside of the lab. That is ladder thinking, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and radical love thinking says, 
the more that I cultivate love inside of myself, the more love, the more authentic, connected love I have to give to others. I tell people all the time, if I had a cup of water, right? Mm -hmm. And my cup of water was like just down here and it was mostly just my backwash, right? I'm not generous because I gave you the dredges of my backwash, (laughs) right? That's That's not care, right? That's something else. Usually it's me Mm. trying to figure out my self-worth through how much I can extend myself, how much I can diminish myself for you. That's usually what that is, right? But if I am overflowing and I give you my overflow, right? Mm. You're always one going to get fresh water, right? And I'm never going to have to do without. We both are met in that scenario, Mm-hmm. So I get it's abundance. It's abundance, right? And so radical yeah. self-love is I want to be so abundant in my love that it pours from me fully into everything else it is that I engage with. Yes. I think I saw someone describe it once. I think it was Lisa Nichols. She described it as um, like a, a teacup and a saucer and feeding people from your saucer. Exactly. So so, so that the, the stuff that's overpouring because you are so abundant. Exactly. And again, I just, it all comes back to the ladder and I'm amazed every time. <laughs> even though you've said, even though you've said it multiple times, it all comes back. I'm still blown away by how, I, I, I just think it's so amazing because it's, it's so simple and that's why it's so complex. I think that's amazing. Okay, thank you so much for that answer. So the next question, where does the line between self-love and narcissism go? How far can you go in self-love? And I, I'm always fascinated by this, this conflation of things that are just actually not related at all. Right. And I think that's because, again, <laughs> we have warped the definition of love. We've just made it mean a bunch of things. We've, we have tried to fit it into the ladder. And so now we relate to love from the perspective of the latter, right? Because narcissism is not a love. Narcissism, from its clinical definition, is someone who feels a deep sense of not enoughness. And so they have an overinflation, a vibrato, a pretend, a pretend elevation of themselves to try to feel the not enoughness. It doesn't come from love. Narcissism is not a function of loving yourself. It's a function of a deep sense of disconnection and a lack of love. And so consequently, it again has to barter for love through with the external world by pretending I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. I'm so amazing. And I say that so that the outside world will tell me that, too. Yeah. It doesn't come from a belief in one's love. Would you would you would you say that so if narcissism is inherently hollow and and needs to accrue mm-hmm. things outside of it to make up the facade that it is lo- loving itself and that it is um that it isn't hollow and that it is full. Mm-hmm. Would you say that typically people who actually love themselves it's a little more quiet or just a little less grandiose than Well yeah, that kind it isn't performative. It doesn't require yes. a performance. Right. It just is. It just is. Right. Yeah. That's the difference. (laughs) Like that's the difference. Like I said, that thinking doing creates being right. You just are. You don't have to try. It's that's why I tell people like you don't have to try to figure out how to love yourself. Love Mm -hmm. is your inherent state and everything else is what needs to be removed, peeled away so that your inherent state just is. Right. Mm -hmm. Anything where you find yourself in performance isn't love. 
It is, it is vying. It's the latter. It is how can I externally climb to gather my worthiness, to gather my enoughness, to gather my lovability, right? That's not love. It's just, it just is. Oh my God, I'm just going to give you Sonia's Instagram straight away because you all need to be following her. Um, I'm sure you're all in love with her after everything she had to say. I had to stop so many times during that and write notes. Her Instagram is at Sonia Renee Taylor. So that's S-O-N-Y-A-R-E-N-E-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. It's going to be in the description of the podcast anyway. And you can buy her book, The Body Is Not An Apology, if you want to hear more from her. I am just feeling, I, I can't wait to go home and write so many notes on this. I love all of the links that she makes between capitalism, how we're made to feel about our bodies and how almost every single system of oppression is reinforced because of low self-esteem. Thank you so much again to Sonia for joining me today and to every one of you for listening. If you've enjoyed listening, then please share this with your friends. To keep updated with all the latest episodes as and when they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget, you can join me every week for Ask Floss, where I answer all of your questions from how to be self-assured to exploring your sexuality. Whatever it is, you can ask me anything over there and I'll fucking answer it. Send your questions to the WhatsApp number at plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. Subscribe to Extra Floss to listen right now. You can visit extrafloss.com to start your free trial and get access wherever you get your podcasts, or you can visit exactly on Apple Podcasts and hit try free at the top of the page. I want to give a massive thank you to the formidable Black Honey who composed the original theme music. You can find them on Instagram at at BlackHoneyUK and check out their latest album, written and directed. This is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. My producer is Millie Charles, assistant producer is Ella McLeod, executive producer is Carly Mayo, the production coordinator is Lily Hambly, and I want to give a special thanks to Chris Skinner, Jonathan Imiri, Ryan O'Meara, and Teddy Riley for additional production, and a big thanks to our engineers, Josh Gibbs and Gully Lawrence Tickle, and mix engineer, Jay Beale. <laughs>